We are live. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Protectors Book Club. I am greeting today Toby Harnden. How are you doing, Toby? Hey, Jason. I'm good, thanks. Good to be with you. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. This is great. This is uh, slowly turning into one of my favorite books. I'm about halfway through now. It's First Casualty, The Untold Story of the CIA Mission to Avenge 9-11. And joining us tonight is my nephew, Rylan Warner. He's now going to be part of the Protectors Book Club. He's going to be helping me out. And he's going to give us the perspective of what 9-11 means to him, being as he's only what? How old are you now, Rylan? 17 or 18? I'm 18. 18. 18, living his whole life. And the global war on terrorism has been going on. Uh, Toby, I am blown away by this book. I have to tell you that. And I am halfway through it. I just got to where they took over uh, Mazar al-Sharif. And I just, uh, seriously, the intricacy of this book is amazing. You and I did talk about this on the Protectors podcast. But going into this book, I did not believe it was going to be this in-depth. What is it like putting the words on well, for these people you interviewed? It's, um, you know, it's kind of hard because you soak it all up and you feel um, – protective i mean this is the protectors you know you feel i feel protected towards these people in a way because they've given so much and they've also put their trust in me and so to put it together it's so intensely personal for them and their families and their colleagues so it's kind of a you know feels like a a lot of responsibility um but at the same time it's been hugely rewarding already i mean publication official publication isn't till tomorrow morning um, so it's not properly out in the in the world yet, but already I get the feeling. Um, I mean, one of the greatest compliments I've had so far is a couple of members of the team have said, "Hey, you know, I understand this better now that you know you've you've written this book because I had one perspective that was obviously mine that was very narrow, but you you put the pieces together." And um, one one guy said, "You know, that he actually you know appreciated." some of the things that other members of the team did at the time that he didn't sort of fully understand, but now he could see sort of what else was going on with them and the sort of breadth of their responsibilities, you know? So I feel like in a way it's sort of brought the team together a little bit, the six surviving members of the team, six guys still living. Um, Because I think unlike sort of military teams like ODAs and stuff, these guys just had like a bomber. So at the end of it, they just went, to different parts of the agency and they haven't kind of particularly kept up. They don't have reunions. I don't think the six of them have ever been together uh, since uh, December, 2001. And even during that period in October, November, December, uh, they were often split up into two, three man sort of sub teams. So yeah, I mean, overall um, it's a, it's a, it's a great feeling, but obviously, you know, you always have sort of trepidation. Did I, you know, did I get it just right? You know, is there other more people I could have talked to. And of course, of course there were, but it also feels like the right time um, to get this story out. 20th anniversary, obviously (laughs) all the stuff that's been happening with Afghanistan. So I feel that the story, you know, should get out to the broadest audience possible. And I think now is the right time for that. You know, and I I read the agency books before this, the the jawbreaker books and and everything I could, I, I tried to absorb as much as I could, about the GWAT, because it's kind of like my background. I love this stuff. I love counterterrorism. The when I say this book is intricate and and deep down shows what each 
quote-unquote character is going through. It really does. When you talk about them preparing for this operation, and, you know, I should probably, you know, everybody, if you don't know what the book's about, it's about the first uh, weeks and months uh, right after 9-11, getting ready to go in and avenge the attack. So when I'm saying this book is really an intricate viewing of that, I'm, I'm very impressed. Uh, how did everybody recollect this? Did, did a lot of the people that you interviewed keep journals and notes? Well, so they weren't supposed to. <laughs> so most of them didn't. Um, some did. Uh, one in particular did, David Tyson, um, kind of had a very scrawly sort of diary, which was extremely useful. Um, you know, there were various sort of emails and, you know, cross-referencing. I didn't get access to CIA cables, unfortunately. The FOIA requests all went, you know, were all uh, rejected. Um, but it was a very um, intense and important um, few weeks in these people's lives. So I think there was a kind of a, an above average sort of recollection um, because of that. And also just, you know, I, I interviewed all six members of the team and uh, not to mention, you know, George Tenet, the agency director, Kofa Black, the counterterrorism center director, Hank Crompton, who was the guy in counterterrorism center, special operations who sort of ran the war, war. So I interviewed all those, plus people in Uzbekistan, people from Jawbreaker team. So what I find is it starts off, um, you know, it's hard to kind of grasp the timeline and stuff and, and also the geography, but, you know, I, you know, you put it together and then you cross-reference and it's it's funny how sometimes uh, the sixth the six member of the team that I interviewed there were a couple of things that were sort of just niggling away at me. I don't quite get that. Or when was that? Or what was that? And then he just, without a couple of them, even even without me asking him, he just nailed them. So it's it's funny how it all comes together. I think of CIA. I think of the ones that would go in to attack and take out Osama bin Laden, Al Qaeda, and the collective would be the paramilitary. Would be those ground types. Would be those like ex special forces, ex military, excess. David Tyson, it, it amazes me with with his grit and going in and doing this and not having that background. He's more of like you know, if he was in a military type, he would be like the military intelligence guy, right. the linguist, the interrogator type. Um, bringing him and putting him into war based on his background goes to show you that when you're in the agency, you never know what you're going to jump into. What struck you about interviewing and talking to David? Well, I got to know him extremely well, and I've been kind of chasing him for like many years. I first talked to him seven years ago, seven or eight years ago, um, but he only retired last year, so he could only properly talk about He's a fascinating guy. And yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. You see, so I was thinking about this. For your average American, maybe they would think the teams that went in after 9-11 might be like, you know, the SEAL team that they saw, you know, in the Zero Dark Thirty movie. You know, elite guys with helmets and night vision goggles. They'd done this thing, you know, a hundred times before. Something went wrong with the helicopter, but they had a plan B and they immediately switched to that. And this was not like that at all. It was very improvised. I mean, the team did not, I mean, the, the core of the team, so the eight, eight people in Team Alpha, the core of them, four of them, three or four of them, were uh, a, a paramilitary team within the Special Activities Division. But the rest of them were not. There was a medic, there were two case officers, J.R. Seeger, who was like a diary linguist, 
and David Tyson, who was um, an Uzbek linguist, and there was a Green Beret who was attached as sort of liaison. Plus, there weren't that many uh, CIA officers available who were qualified. But David, yeah, I mean, he had been a military intelligence officer for a short period. He'd been an artilleryman, you know, in the 80s, um, you know, played a lot of basketball. You know, he there was no way he was an elite um, soldier. And some of the other members of the team, um, Alex Hernandez, who was the deputy, who 25 years, Sergeant Major, Special Forces, you know, went on to do, uh, I think, 15 years or more for, in, in the agency, sort of legendary paramilitary. He was like, huh. So what's your story? And his, and his nickname was The Professor, you know. And in a way, he sort of played down his military service. I mean, he, he had, you know, he, he had fired a rifle and not in combat. Um, but, you know, he, he did have, um, you know, military experience. But, I mean, he'd done a, pist he'd done a pistol course in the CIA when he, when he joined. And, but he hadn't fired a rifle since the 80s. So... In Uzbekistan, before going in, Justin Sapp, who was the Green Beret captain on, on the team, he took him into like an underground sort of firing range and gave him a lesson on the AKMS, the, the Kalashnikov with a folding stock, which is what they took in. And, you know, thank God for David. I mean, he paid attention <laughs> because because he, he needed it um, when, you know, when the proverbial shit hit the fan on November the 25th. Um, so to me, it was sort of fascinating because it, it was so improvised, the nature of the team, the nature of the mission, incredible, um, delegation to these guys. So, you know, they took like strategic decisions really on the, on the ground. They had incredible latitude, all the sort of GWAT kind of rules and, you know, rules of engagement well, were almost I, non-existent. I'm going to. I'm going to interrupt you right there. And we'll, we'll, that's, I'm glad you led right into this. This is uh, page 82. And you know one thing about this book, Everybody First Casualty, um, if you were, I don't care what you think about anything going on in the real world right now. Um, you need this. Lessons learned. Um, I'm reading this book, and I'm getting an after-action review that's going to be timely for anybody fighting the next wars or, or uh, terroristic type events that will eventually happen. But page 82, we got to go back to this. The concept of CIA operations after 9-11 was a push authority downward, granting extraordinary freedom of action to those on the ground. Thus, Kofor Black had placed Hank Crumpton in charge of running the war. Let me just mute that real quick. Running the war while he dealt with Washington politics. Crumpton had delegated much of northern Afghanistan to J.R., the two spoke by satellite phone daily, but J.R. had almost carte blanche to make tactical decisions, even if they had strategic implications. There was no second guessing from CIA headquarters. That brings up to it seems like, you know, a month later, two weeks later, three weeks later, you're starting to get the second guessing. You're starting to get the the um, as one of my favorite authors and former military people would say, uh, perfume princes. The, the ones at the headquarters, the Rumsfelds, the generals, the colonels, and uh, you get that second guessing. So them having this decision and this authority to go and take the fight directly to them, AKs on their backs, pistols on their sides, um, laser uh, range finders, laser, laser guided missiles. It was just unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you picked up on that because it was – 
it was sort of stunning to me and and of course you know as you sort of say um it's never been like that since yeah and um this goes into i i bookmark so many of these pages um and this isn't just i like it because it's a very when i read nonfiction, i want to read in-depth stuff i want to learn something that i've never learned before you could read the 9-11 commission you could read the the other agency books but they're not in-depth like this and this is where I come into uh, when we talk about the soft teams, the SF teams. They're regular ODAs, Operational Detachment Alphas. These are the guys that do the foreign internal defense, the direct action missions. They're not Delta. They're not Tier 1. They're like the really tr true groups on the ground. Uh, and on here, um, this is coming from uh, Rumsfeld. Don Rumsfeld was a, the Secretary of Defense back then. And he says, this is page 120. Are you sure those special forces teams – have senior enough officers in command? Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld asked General Tommy Franks. It seems to me that Northern Alliance generals won't really listen to young captains and majors. Franks had then pressured Mulholland, the, the, the commander at the time, to dispatch more senior special forces officers from K2, threatening to send brigadier generals from the regular army if he did not. They're fighting. They're killing. They're killing the enemy. They might be not on the most fast track because they don't, they understand the terrain and they're working with the terrain. They're working what they have for him to say that, Hey, let's ditch these captains and majors and throw in some officers. What do these officers know? I mean, what, what was your, what was your feeling when you talked to everybody about how they felt about the pressure from DC? Well, Captain Mark Nooch, then Captain Mark Nooch, who was the commander of ODA 595, um, who was, uh, you know, who were famously the sort of horse soldiers uh, from Doug Stanton's book of that name uh, and, the, and the 12 strong movie where uh, Mark, I think he's called Mitch Nelson in the movie, but he's played by Chris Hemsworth. Um, so Martin Mooch has very strong opinions on this because, um, you know, part of the um, Q Corps special forces training is this Robin Sage uh, exercise where the, the job of the of the ODA is to partner with the G chief um, and and the G chief the guerrilla chief you know in this case was Abdul Rashid Dostum notorious warlord and Martin Nooch, um coincidentally he grew up in Kansas so he was a great horseman which was extremely important in this situation and most of the agency guys and Green Berets were not but he had he had that going for him and he did an amazing job of striking up a rapport with Dostum. I mean, uh, they kind of lo loved each other. You know, I mean, it was a real sort of bromance, you know, um, and I'm not trying to sort of cheap, cheapen it because that's that was essential to the mission and that was one of the things that that, um, that helped um, them achieve so much success. But it was just kind of nicely sort of um, balanced um, they just managed to coordinate the sort of the, 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 the cavalry charges from the Uzbek sort of warriors with um, with U.S. airstrikes, which is no sort of easy thing. So they were they were just starting to move. And then the ODC, so the battalion element with, with the lieutenant colonel sort of came in on top and the lieutenant colonel's kind of like, OK, off you go, Captain. I'm taking over. And Dostum was sort of nonplussed, like, you know, what's going on? And then a few weeks later, an admiral, Admiral Calland, um, who was Soxent, um, two-star, 
he came in and took over from the lieutenant colonel. So, you know, and then Mark Nutri's ODA 595 were briefly, and they weren't happy about it, the guard force for the Admiral. So it kind of kind of crazy, but also sort of emblematic of, of the way the military works, you know. Uh, everybone needs I, uh, to get in on the success. And then, you know, you must be reading my mind with my talking points tonight. So let me read this. This is page 154 to 155, talking just about that. To add insult to injury, for Nooch, his men were asked were tasked by Bowers with guarding Calland, who had arrived with his master chief seal carrying a starched uniform hanging in plastic. The battle for northern Afghanistan was not yet won, but some in the Pentagon seemed to believe that the fighting and the military rituals of peacetime could begin. And that's where the 20-year war started. That right there, bringing a press uniform in, generals, admirals, guard forces, staff upon staff upon staff. And um, I'll give you a break talking here for a second because you can see where this all kind of comes in. I'm going to backtrack to page 126 talking about Rumsfeld and how the media and how he's he's playing the media game and how he's listening to the media. So let me roll this by you. This is page 126. Back in Washington, by contrast, gloom was setting in. At the White House meeting on November 9th, Rumsfeld briefed Bush the CIA-led campaign was stalling, citing a DIA paper he had circulated two weeks earlier. He warned that winter was fast approaching, making it unlikely that Dotson's Northern Alliance would take Mazar al-Sharif until 2002. He even cited a New York Times article reporting that the word quagmire was gaining, gaining traction and wondering Afghanistan was becoming the new Vietnam. Listening to media, he, they're, they're running with papers. They're doing the, the typical Washington, D.C. bureaucratic shuffle, and it, it's blowing my mind seeing everything going on in the world right now in this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's sort of, you know, interagency disputes. The Pentagon didn't have a plan, so the CIA stepped in because they've been going in and out of uh, Afghanistan and building up connections with Ahmed Shah Massoud in, in, in the years before. So the Pentagon, which is, you know, orders of magnitude bigger than the CIA, was sort of resentful. And uh, so, you know, all this kind of starts to uh, starts to come into play. And in the meantime, I mean, the, one of the great things about this, this story, I feel, is, is just the characters and the guys on the ground who are just getting on with it. So, yeah, the Pentagon and the CIA were sort of butting heads and, you know, kind of, you know, briefing against each other and all that type type of stuff. But on the ground, ODA 595 and Team Alpha were just like that. And they remain like that to the day, to this day. And and anything they could do each other for each other, they would. And it was kind of a, a seamless relationship where, you know, the, the ODA was principally fighting and calling in airstrikes and dealing with the Taliban. And the CIA was principally sort of dealing with the tribal politics and, and looking for Al-Qaeda and, and, and gathering the actionable intelligence. So on the ground, it worked It worked really well. And sometimes if you just push it downwards, you know, the guys on the ground are the, are the, are the people that, that know, you know, know things best. And that brings me back to David Tyson again, is that he knows Afghanistan. He knows that culture. He's lived it. He's 
for years upon years, even before he went into that country. He knows what the, the culture is like. And he almost you can almost get the sense that he feels like it. he's part of it. Yeah. But then you, then you read it after he starts getting into combat, after he sees what's going on. I, I read this portion here, page 110. This is uh, yet still the layer upon layer of brutality in Afghanistan was something that David might never comprehend or become inured to. The violence was fed by ethnic identity, tribes, clans, feuds, blood, honor, and vengeance. For all his languages and cultural understanding, he concluded he would always be an interloper in, a, in the Afghan world. And when you talk about the ground truth, you talk about people on the ground. For 20 years, we've, we've never grasped this. After these first points, the people on the ground, these young majors and captains, lieutenants, NCOs, enlisted people that are on the ground, have been on the ground for 20 plus years, uh, for 20 years. They know this stuff. They know that they will always be interlopers. I think that there's such a shift in, in cultural divide between the politicians and the bureaucracy and the media uh, to this. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a natural kind of Western thing and maybe particularly American thing is we sort of we think people are like us. You know, we think that they want the same things we do. They have the same sort of value systems and that they can sort of be motivated the same way that we are. But, you know, people are not always like us, you know, which is no. not to say that there isn't fundamental sort of, you know, good and evil and decency and human nature and, and people who will deceive you. You know, that's there is, you know, to an extent, hum, human nature is sort of universal. But the tribal system and the, you know, decades of war, shifting alliances, um, the kind of Afghan surrenders, the Afghan way of searching people. I mean, the behavior, the sexual behavior with like T-boys and, you know, multiple wives. It's it's pretty different. And I mean, it's interesting. It was very interesting to me that there was almost, I think David Tyson kind of, he lived in Central Asia. He's he spoke as close to fluent Uzbek as you could get. He spoke he real polyglot, spoke multiple languages and had sort of, you know, one point in uh, when he lived in Tashkent before he joined the agency, he didn't own any shoes. I mean, he was a guy that really just about went native, but he realized, you know, as you point out from that passage that even he, he called it the, the Afghan onion. You know, he couldn't, he, he was never going to peel through, through, through all the layers. And that sort of, Humility, in a way, um, I think is important. And 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 Jr. the chief, who was a diary speaker, who'd been stationed in Islamabad during the 80s, so he'd worked with the Mujahideen then when they were fighting against the Soviets. He was like, you know, this, you know, the, the surrender that led to Kalajangi, it was an Afghan deal, but it's it's their country, and there were small numbers of Americans in the wings, and it's messy. Sometimes you can't make sense of it. But, you know, if you start to try and run the country yourself, then, you know, you kind of end up with, uh, you know, where we've ended up in Afghanistan now. I, I'm really enjoying this book. Like I said, I'm about 160 pages in now. I'm looking forward to it, but I want to backtrack a little bit to who you are. And I'm really excited to talk, tell everybody out there that you are prior military. You're a dual citizen. I mean, you, you've done a lot of different things. You've written books besides this, and you've been in journalism for decades now. Have you always been drawn to the Middle East? Have you always been drawn to conflict? Um, 
Conflict, yes. Uh, Middle East, not particularly. Although, um, you know, one of my great grandfathers was um, stationed in India. In fact, my father was was born in India when you know his father was in the in the British Army. You know, uh, that grandfather went to um, Iraq, you know Iraq, and uh, there's pictures of him in the Khyber Pass. You know, so maybe somewhere in the, in the blood. You know, there was another great grandfather that was. Um, that was uh, in Egypt in, in the 1880s. Um, but, you know, I'm fourth generation military. Um, I t- my father was in the Navy. The two generations before that were Army. And so I, I, I always felt that, um, that I, would, I would serve. And I, I sort of, you know, went, followed in the footsteps of my father. Um, but, you know, I, I joined the Navy in 1985 um, and left in 94 in the end. I tried very hard to get involved in the Gulf War. They managed to win it without me. And, um, you know, the Cold War was over. The only conflict which didn't really involve the Navy in Britain was Northern Ireland. And it, so it felt like I went to lots of nice places, but it, you know, it didn't feel like sort of the sharp end to me. And I'd grown up with, you know, my grandfather getting out his medals and, and, and stuff like that. I didn't get any medals and neither did my father actually. So, um, you know, I sort of thought I'd cut my losses and, go into journalism and that that would get me to play in a way similarly to the Navy that would get me to travel meet lots of different people have a varied life be able to kind of be within the same profession but change every every year or two and that's exactly what happened and um, you know I was fortunate that you know I was short time in London as a journalist and then I got posted to Northern Ireland and there was a sense that um, that conflict was over but then just before I got there, there was a IRA ceasefire ended. And so this very small patch of land that was sort of nominally part of the United Kingdom, but was, you know, had like Protestant terrorists, had the IRA, it had political talks going on. And so that that got me, that really got me into the the sort of military side of things. And I, I think um, I think if there's a thing, there's a common theme. So, I've, you know, this is a third book I wrote, Bandit Country, which was about the IRA heartland. Dead Men Risen, which was about a British battle group in Helmand in the Pashtun South in Afghanistan in 2009, and this book. But I think the sort of common thread is the sort of the gritty reality of war and the sort of the, the, the sort of horror of war and the sort of the heroism, but also the cowardice and the mistakes and uh, the things that um, don't happen quite the way they, sh- they, they should have done. Um, I'm s- I'm the opposite of the, the sort of sanitized. Here's the here's how the discussion in the Situation Room went. I have n- almost no interest in that stuff, really, to be honest. Um, but the sort of you know, I'd say, yeah, the, the 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 messy, gritty reality of war, which you know, I think is one of the th- things that comes through in these characters. And again, I'm interested. I'm not. I have no interest in celebrities. I've really very little interest in politicians, but sort of ordinary people with extraordinary qualities, as, as these guys certainly did, that, that find themselves in extraordinary situations. That's what I think is really interesting in life. I like how you pull on threads. And I'm really looking, I'm actually going to, after I'm done with this, I'm going to pick up your other two books. I want to, the way you write this book is you're pulling on a threads, you're getting the lessons learned, and it's real journalism is real writing it's not it's investigative 
journalism. And I, I, I am anybody out there who ever wants to get into the field of writing nonfiction or journalism, really dig into it and investigate it and verify and fact check and everything you have to do, like really do it because you really did a great job with this, Toby. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much. I mean, I really try. I think fact, facts matter. I think truth matters. I mean, you know, I've, I spent a long time as a journalist and one of the things about journalism is it's very imperfect. It's the first draft of, draft of history. You do the best you can on the day. And that certainly uh, has a role. But I, I love being able to go back afterwards. And, and it in a way, it really does take 20 years because David Tyson wouldn't have spoken to me until last year. And, you know, so, you know, you have first those books you mentioned, like First In by Gary Schroen and Jawbreaker by Gary Bernson, really good books. But they were written a year or two afterwards from perspective of one person at a time when really most of it was classified. You, you couldn't talk about this stuff in any depth, but it's extremely satisfying to be able to go back and get as close to what actually happened as possible and, and, and know that it's just there for history forever. And we're not relying on just, you know, newspaper cuttings from some guy that was you know, being shouted at by an editor, you know, sort of on the day it happened. Yeah, a guy who was uh, edited, 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 and then they let him go on. Uh, one thing about David Tyson, I haven't yet got to the point where we lost uh, Mike's band, but that's one thing about this book. I, I, When I first heard about everything that happened there and about the two of them doing the interrogation and uh, Johnny Mike, Michael, Johnny Span dying, I always assumed that David Tyson was like this super spooky CIA paramilitary type killer. You know, that's what you think about, like back then, um, but he wasn't. And that really surprised me when I read this book. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, he was a killer. I mean, he killed dozens of people yeah. that day. Um, and he, he, I guess, didn't know he had it in him. But it was a, it was a kill or be killed situation. And, uh, you know, I've spoken to him about this at length. And he's actually fascinated by Dave Grossman's sort of on killing book and on combat. And so he's really thought he's, he's spoken to sort of Israelis about, you know, how you train people to kill and stuff. And, um, you know, because this is this just all, you know, plays on his mind the whole time. And one of the kind of conclusions he came to is that you just you just never know. You could be as trained as, you know, anyone and you could just freeze or you could have very little training. And I mean, I think what it comes down to in a, in a way is sort of like character, you know? And so David came from this very sort of simple sort of Mennonite background in Pennsylvania, blue collar, um, you know, kind of very little money. And so there are no, no frills about him. There's nothing he ever does for effect. I mean, talk about virtue signaling and all that. It's not even part of his makeup. And if he wants to do something, he'll do it. And if he doesn't, you know, he won't. <laughs> and now he's learned to sort of work within, you know, had a full career in, in CIA. But, you know, he's he's really is his own person and he's solid. And I've, you know, he and others from this team and from, from the ODA 595 um, are working, you know, every hour they have to spare at the moment to get their Afghan allies out. And so, you know, these are people who, um, are loyal and, you know, 
they trust their they put that their trust for that of their lives in the hands of other people and they'll sort of return the favor and so i think it's it was really david's sort of inner character that you know when he heard mike's band shout dave 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 he ran towards him you know and rather than running in the other direction which is where where most of the afghans were going um and i just think it's sort of it was just sort of an intrinsic part of his makeup and he says it wasn't even a decision like he, he just didn't have time we took split seconds time was slowing down but like he didn't have time to process everything and so it was almost like an involuntary movement towards um his comrade who was who was in trouble and you know it was fascinating and kind of inspiring because i guess every person you know hopes that when they get tested that they'll respond i mean i think about it if you know if somebody is in you know a car accident or if you know i'm walking into one of my kids schools and there's a shoot and there's a shooter in there what what will i do you know will i crawl up behind the trash can or will i you know make good decisions help people i don't know i haven't been thankfully most of us are not tested in that way but it's it to me it's it was getting to know david and hearing his story was fascinating because he is so ordinary and sort of decent i mean you would not you know you would not give him a second thought um he, he just sort of blends in um but you know when when the time came he he did an extraordinary thing I uh I'm I'm really hesitant to get to that point. I can't imagine being in that situation that he did and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. You and I've been talking a while. I think it's time to open up that floor to my nephew, Rylan Warner. I want to kind of get his insight and in, what he knows about 9/11 and, and it doesn't even know about what happened. Rylan, the floor is yours. Ask some questions or give us some comments. Sounds good. Um well, First of all, um, school has taught me a lot about 9-11 because, of course, I wasn't alive during then. So, again, um, how do I say this? As I know that 9-11 went down, of course, planes were hijacked um, and were crashed into the buildings. It was really devastating. Um, I don't know. Um So what do you what do you think what what do you know about the Taliban? What do you know about Al Qaeda? Um, more of a terrorist group, I guess. Um, well, I think that's kind of you're kind of I hate to throw you under the bus here, but you're kind of proving a point about the knowledge base of being 20 years into the GWAT. Like it was fresh as day to me and and toby but to you not living through it it's almost like me wondering what vietnam was like when i was a kid growing up i mean i would meet some veterans here and there i mean there was still stuff going on in the world cold war all the other stuff but i didn't have a real grasp of it i'd imagine this is what it was like um for the the kids growing up in 1960 and wondering what pearl harbor was like so I am going to get with Toby and I think Toby's probably going to get you a book first casualty. So I think this is one of those books we really need to get out there to the general public as well. Just so um, young adults like Ryland know. Yeah. Well, actually Ryland's 
probably in the temp, top 10% of, you know, 18-year-old Americans in terms of his knowledge, you know. Yeah. Because, you know, he does have a basic grasp of planes being hijacked and, you know, across the country and, you know, descending on, you know, New York and, and Washington, D.C. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously with a book you have sort of multiple audiences, but it's very much in my mind that, you know, it's 20 years ago, which means that anybody in their um, – 40s even or certainly in their 30s it's not going to have you know much knowledge of it other than what they've read and maybe you know i mean i guess you would if you were in your teens or whatever you would or college you would you, you would have got a sense of it from tv but they haven't sort of lived it you know like known people who who were killed um and it was such a for me you know i was in washington dc on 9-11 uh and you know, it was a life-changing sort of experience. And I always felt that it actually sort of set me on a path to becoming American, you know, which I did in 2009. Um, Because I felt that anybody who was in the United States, and particularly in Washington, D.C. or or New York, they just had a different view of the world. Um, And it sort of, you know never left us but it's been interesting for me with a lot of the discussion um and the talking heads in the last few weeks how little 9-11 comes up and i occasionally get the sense that some of the journalists kind of forgotten how this started and obviously this book is about you know when the mission was you know get bin laden stop the next attack deny sanctuary to al-Qaeda, you know, sort of very limited. And the entire country was behind it. And, you know, without straying into, into politics too much, it's interesting to me that, that Congresswoman Barbara Lee of California was the only person to vote against authorizing uh, military force in, I guess, October 2001. And, and I mean, there's... <laughs> I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens of newspaper articles written in the last few years saying how great she was and how she was the only person that understood it. And Bernie Sanders in the Democratic debate, you know, said, yeah, she was right and he was wrong. And, you know, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, I... can you live in a world? I mean, can you imagine a world in which 3,000 people killed in New York on a single day from an attack launched by Osama bin Laden from Al-Qaeda based in Afghanistan, and we just don't do anything about it. Um, So obviously there's a big market right now for, you know, how catastrophic the war was, how we shouldn't have done it, and et cetera, et cetera. And and that will, you know, stay with us for a while. But we shouldn't forget, we shouldn't forget that this was um, universally supported in the United States and around the world, the UN backed it, NATO invoked, invoked Article 5. I mean, this was, if there ever was a just war, this this was one. Um, we did stop um, Al-Qaeda attacking in the years since. In the last 20 years, there hasn't been um, a major attack on uh, on the homeland. And yeah, it took us a decade longer than we should have done to get bin Laden. But, um, you know, although this... This war in Afghanistan turned out pretty badly in the end. I think we sh- we we shouldn't forget why we did this and why it was it was fully justified 
uh, both sort of practically and morally. Well, that's the other thing too, is I, you know, I, I unfairly, I threw Ryland under the bus for his age, but I didn't really, cause I'm thinking about it this way. It's like, this book isn't just for 18, 19, 20 year olds. It's for the journalists who were in their twenties, even early thirties, even forties who don't remember that day, who maybe they were too young. Maybe they were a young teen. Maybe they were in grade school. Maybe they weren't even born yet. But now they are in the journalism world and they don't know what it's like. If you go and you read your book and you see exactly what was going on on the ground and why we did what we did with such a small footprint, it might give you a better perspective on this whole situation going on right now. Yeah. I mean, again, it's easy sitting here now in 2021 to say we should have done this and we should have done that. And you know, like anybody else, I, I sort of have my opinions. But one thing I have sort of increasingly sort of little time for as I sort of get older is people who know it all. They're so shit sure of themselves that if only they'd been the president or the head of CENTCOM or the CIA director, it all would have worked out, you know? I mean, life is is messy and difficult, and there were, there were no easy solutions to this. You know, there are these judgment calls where, you know, there's downsides to each option. You, you, you're not in possession of, of, of all the information. And sort of war is like that. Now, of course, there is an argument, you know, which I think is legitimate, that we need to be very careful about going to war because of unintended consequences and because you, you don't have a full knowledge set. And we've, cert- we've certainly, you know, sort of um, learned those lessons, I think, over, over the last um, 20 uh, you years. Know, you know, you, you bring it up in a book. It's... Uh... It's like, as soon as we do it, we go in and we we take out a whole ton of bad guys. It's like you hear Bush talking, going, "Hey, did you draw up the plans for Iraq yet?" It's like, come on, you know. I know, but uh, listen, you know, I remember that atmosphere, and I mean, it's one of the sort of ironies, tragedies of history, really. That I think the success of this early mission, and again, a lot of people have completely forgotten it. Or they don't want to know. They just want. They just want to say, "Oh, it was a disaster from, you know, day one." Yeah. And you know, Barbara Lee was right. We should never have gone in there. But the, this was a this was a stunning success. Now it was provisional. It was it was you know it was temporary. Even at the time, as it says, we've toppled the Taliban. Now what? But you know, by the middle of November two thousand and one. So you know, really within six weeks um, of launching airstrikes five even. And putting the teams on the ground, the Taliban had been toppled. And I think what happened, and I remember it at the time, there was this sort of sense of, you know, arrogance, I guess, or, you know, just American sort of, you know, yeah, we did it. You know, we kicked their asses. We we took revenge. It's, it's It was easy. Look, you know, the naysayers said it was going to, we were going to be bogged down in the winter and it was going to be like Vietnam and the Russians. Mm-hmm. But actually, we did it. So let's deal with Iraq, you know, let's deal with Saddam Hussein, who's, you know, who's a sponsor of terrorism and a threat, a threat to the United States. So, you know, I mean, I remember the I remember the atmosphere vividly and, um, you know, the rest is literally history, isn't it? Well, Toby, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about it. And I really appreciate you writing this book and getting it. I, I can imagine the deadline was crazy to try to get this out before the 20th anniversary. But I appreciate you giving us your time as well, uh, not only on the Protector Show, but also on the Protector's Book Club. 
Uh, you're always welcome on. Uh, you're, I like you're a valued guest and you're a valued person in a journalistic field. So please keep reporting. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was um, it was a crunch, but I'm glad I I'm glad I didn't you know let it slip and say oh let's do it for the 21st anniversary of 9/11 because I think it it is the right it, it is the right time now and I mean I appreciate you reading the book and sort of understanding it and um, yeah now I'm just sort of just want to get the get the word out so that people can read you know an extraordinary story about remarkable people. Everybody, the book comes out tomorrow. That's right. right? Yeah, tomorrow. First Casualty, the Untold Story of the CIA Mission to Avenge 9-11 by Toby Harnden. Um, do me a favor, head on over to Amazon right now, pre-order it, and they're really good. You'll get the sucker the next day. Or go to your, your bookstores or wherever. Go. This book is worth it. I guarantee it. I'd stake my any reputation I have on how good this book is. Um, we do have one question for you. I just got one. Here we go. From Vod, I can't pronounce that. <laughs> Can you describe how different it was writing First Casualty and Dead Men Rising? Yes. So, Risen. so Dead Men Rising was about a battle group, which was 500 people um, in the Hellman in, in 2009, right? And so it, it had it had characters, um, but it was a sort of it was a six month period with you know a battle group of of um, core 500. Actually, it swelled to a thousand with all the all the attachments. So it was a much kind of, and also it was in, it was in Helmand in um, 2009. So a British sort of battle, um, British area of operations, sort of in the, in the middle of the war. This was much more focused on characters. Like, so at the core of it, these eight people who were in team alpha. And so it was sort of different bandit country. The first book, was sort of about 25 years of a small geographical area, but you know, all these units coming in and out. So I guess as time has gone on, I've kind of focused in more sort of on particular characters and, and shorter time spaces, because then you can get that sort of granular detail that um, I, really enjoy, uh, I really enjoy doing. Um, I mean, the other big difference is this was dealing with the CIA and intelligence, which is sort of harder, it's harder to get CIA people to speak than it is uh, military people, um, but uh, it also, um, it, you know, it, it was fascinating for me to learn about the agency, about espionage, and and sort of to broaden myself out a little bit from the military, and just to learn about the, the huge variety of CIA people you know i mean i mean I, I was there for the first time a few weeks ago and in the parking lot you know you have like sort of you know uh fort bragg kind of bumper stickers and then two two vehicles that trucks and stuff and then two vehicles down you've got like coexist you know i mean it really <laughs> is you no know? it really is you know part of it's sort of warm fuzzy state departmenty mm -hmm. you know and then you have these you know paramilitaries and um you know, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it, there really is a lot of variety and I kind of enjoyed that a lot. You know, you have different tribes within the agency, like the, the near East division, 
and you know against the sort of the counter-terrorism center the analysts against the operators and all that stuff so <laughs> so it was a whole different group of people and that was that was that was really interesting that's awesome uh very interesting times toby i appreciate you rylan i appreciate you everybody if you're interested in joining the protectors book club it's free just shoot me a dm message comment anything um we do get pre-releases of the books uh thank i want to thank toby's publisher we had three or four extra copies of this we were able to get them out to the right people get some really good reviews going i did drop uh the link to your book into the comments so if everybody out there wants to go take a look um you can order right from just go to the comments bring you right to amazon you can order first casualty the untold story of the cia mission to avenge 9-11 and toby i appreciate it um and thank, thank you very you much for coming on yeah, please buy, buy the book and please do reviews. Amazon reviews, good reviews. reviews. Really important. Spread the word. And thank you, Riley.